You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. The Sportsman's Nation is a 2% for conservation certified business. And on August 21st, you can join other conservationists all over the world in supporting Community Conservation Day. It's a day for anyone to give their time and or dollars back to their local ecosystems and favorite conservation causes. For more information on how you can participate, visit fishandwildlife.org. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you by Go Hunt and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Sign up today to become an insider at GoHunt.com. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitments as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Today on the podcast, I am joined by co-owner of 2% Certified Exodus Outdoor Gear, Chad Sylvester. Uh, You may know them as Exodus Trail Cameras. Uh, And today, Chad and I really kind of take a deep dive into trail cameras. And obviously, uh, as hunters and outdoorsmen and outdoorswomen, trail cameras is a a very vital piece of our um, setup. Uh, whether you're running them, you know, all year, just during the season, uh, however you're using them to to gain intel, uh, trail cameras are, are a very important piece of equipment for all of us. Uh, so Chad and I really get to talk about how the the company was founded, really in a need, uh, what what him and his his partner found uh, as a as a big need for them. Uh, we go through the process of, of building a good camera and everything that goes into that. And Chad really kind of breaks down in the simplest form, um, you know, what people should be looking for when purchasing a trail camera. Um, it's one of the things that I never really kind of taken into consideration when purchasing trail cameras for myself, but he makes a lot of great points. Um, so for anyone that's looking to really um, take the next step with trail cameras or they're just getting introduced to hunting and they're not really sure what to look for, um, Chad offers some great pieces of advice. We also get to talk about how Chad was introduced to hunting there in Ohio and really how that has changed from, you know, when he first started to where he's at now and really kind of the big picture um, of the way Chad looks at hunting. Uh, And Chad also gets to talk about the, you know, the company outlook on conservation, which is obviously super important to them and uh, a new project that they have um, going there with Exodus with um, introducing some uh, new people into the world of hunting. people that have never um, really spent much time in the woods and were kind of indifferent on uh, uh, hunting in general. So exposing them to it um, really from start to finish from, uh, you know, your basic uh, hunter's education to being able to spend some time out in the woods. So um, really cool episode. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this. So episode 48, Chad Sylvester. Enjoy, guys. 
Before we get into the conversation with Chad, though, I want to take a minute to tell you about our partners over at Stone Glacier. Uh, regardless of if you're a whitetail hunter, if you're um, obviously a big game hunter, whatever the case is, um, Stone Glacier is going to have, whether it's a pack, um, some different base layers or outer layers, mid layers, gear, they're going to have something for you. Um, if you haven't already, be sure to download the Stone Glacier app, uh, either on iTunes or Google Play, depending on your device, uh, and really stay up to date with all of the latest releases, um, some new films that they have dropped over there uh, on the app, and really just stay stay in the know and, and up to date with everything that's going on there. Um, one of the, for, for you whitetail hunters out there, one of the packs that I really recommend is the Avail 2200. Uh, I ran that all last year uh, in the woods, and it's it's a great um, day pack uh, for whitetail hunters. It's got plenty of space to to hold food and snacks, uh, any extra gear from a layering standpoint. Um, if you're out there videoing your hunt, plenty of room to, to pack in a camera, camera arm, all that good stuff. And then on top of that, anything that you may need. Um, or anything else that you may need in the tree stand as well. So be sure and check them out, stoneglacier.com. All right, joining me today from 2% Certified Exodus Outdoor Gear, I have co-owner and co-founder Chad Sylvester. Chad, how's it going today? It's going pretty well, man. I, uh, you know, when we got this thing scheduled, my my eyes lit up and I was grinning ear to ear to get a podcast in on a boring Wednesday. <laughs> my day, So uh, I'm feeling pretty giddy right now, but all things are good. Even though I woke up this morning with a little bit of snow on the ground, a little late, late in the year for snow, but it is what it is. Um, so all things considered doing well here. Yeah. Yeah. Same way here. Uh, I think I'm probably, I mean, I know you're, you're in Ohio there, right? Northeast Ohio. Yep. Okay. So you're Northeast. So you're probably shoot. You're probably not even too far. Um, well, depending upon where in Northeast, but yeah, here in Michigan, like Southeast Michigan, yeah, we had snow on the ground. Thankfully, it's all gone now, but uh, yeah, it's not what I was planning to to wake up to, especially this late in April. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, ball. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. So, Chad, let's kind of jump right into things here and tell me about Exodus Outdoor Gear. So, Exodus Outdoor Gear is essentially Exodus trail cameras. Um, we started this company back in, in 2015 as a D2C or direct-to-consumer um, company. And I guess the idea of the trail camera side of things really um, really took root back in, in 2014 is when the, the thinking wheels and the inspiration um, and the early conversation started between um, of my former business partner and co-founder Matt Klein we were uh, we were on a whitetail lease in southern Ohio you know we were both young guys um, you know young families two young both of us had two young kids under the age of five um, and we were both driving just a long ways five plus hours to go to this lease and he had been using cameras for you know six seven eight nine years and I've been running cameras since the early 2000s and we were having a lot of problems that year and it didn't matter you know, even years prior, it didn't really matter what brand or model we were running. Some worked better than others. And then when you um, had to rely on the service side, on the back end support, it just seems like it was, it seemed like it was lacking. Right. So, you know, our frustration um, as consumers is ultimately what led us to the idea of possibly starting um, a hunting company niched down into, into trail cameras. So with that idea, we came to market in 2015 uh, as a D2C company with a single product. I mean, we started the company with relatively no money, yeah. uh, bootstrapping, basically everything, um, top to bottom, complete autodidact, self-taught, self-educated, just go do it, figure it out. Um, and that's the mentality we've always had for the last six years. But when we started, you know, everybody was negative Nancy, you know, yes, everybody's yeah. – you, you can't do this. You can't do that. You don't have enough money. How are you going to solve this problem? You don't have any manufacturing experience. You don't have experience overseas. It was just every excuse in the book. And we really use that for, I know it's cliche to say, but we really use that as, um, you know, fuel to our fire, um, to overcome some of those challenges. But we've been in business for six years now, uh, kind of our claim to fame, which we don't really talk about as a company, 
as much as other people, I guess consumers talk about is our, our warranty and the customer service side of things. That's kind of what we're known for. Um, we launched with a five-year warranty, which is, you know, was the lead or is the leading um, warranty in, in the industry. Uh, and we just, you know, we don't talk about it because it's, you know, that's what we do. That's our company culture. Right. Uh, it's just like an everyday, everyday thing for us. We never think twice about it. But a lot of people think it's a big deal, so that's why that's why I mentioned it. But yeah, we're closing in on six years. May will be six years, and the company's growing, you know, scaling every year. Um, we jumped on board with two percent for conservation a couple years ago. Uh, a customer, Sean Burdick, was actually the influence um, behind us, or one of the influences behind us joining joining two percent. So I just wanted to give him a, a shout out. All right. Um, but yeah, that's uh, kind of in a nutshell. I mean, we're a trail camera company that retails online. No box stores, no no retailers. Um, we deal directly with the end user, and we want to make their experience. Um, we want to maximize their experience, both through our product, through support, and and through content. Yeah. So I've noticed that. I mean, obviously, there's some other pretty well known um, <clears throat> companies in the industry, not necessarily in the trail camera space, but like like uh, First Light, for example, that, you know, all for in their early years sold, uh, obviously, through uh, different retailers and then went to the direct-to-consumer. So was the direct-to-consumer something that you guys had, oh, was that kind of in the plan from the get-go? Yeah. So for us, um, you know, in, in 2014, 2013, 2012, 2013, 2014, um, I had some other business inspirations. And watching Web 2.0 grow, there were several business owners um, that I had kind of followed through those early years, one of them being Jason Hairston, the former Jason Hairston, right. uh, co-founder of uh, Sitka. And he really documented the whole process of building Kuyu after after leaving Sitka. And that was one of the inspirations of, you know, going D2C. But then after, you know, doing market research and teaching yourself um, – or self-educating on components and the manufacturing process and the um, the mindset of the obsolescence manufacturing, um, we saw the ability to not necessarily build products to fit a retail price point to sit on a shelf, but build them to kind of scratch our own itch and solve solve the longevity issue. Right. And I don't think that we could do that um, as a, as a retail brand without being, you know, four five, $600. Right. So <clears throat> how difficult is it? Um, I guess to, well, let me kind of start back from like the manufacturing side of things. So, I mean, what does that process look like? Or when you guys first decided, okay, we're going to, we're going to make these trail cameras, we're going to go direct to consumer. Like, what did that process look like from, okay, we're, we're going to it till when you actually launched it to, um, to the market? Well, the at the very beginning, um, it was kind of, uh, I guess, Frankensteinish, um, tearing apart old cameras, trying to figure out, um, you know, this camera, the IR filter was stuck. Well, can I fix it myself because I can't get support from the company or the warranty was it's out of warranty. Right. Can I buy a part from DigiKey to to, <laughs> to to make it work? Um, so that's, you know, that's where the even before Exodus, the thought of Exodus, you know, we were doing those kind of things in the in the garage. And I come from kind of, uh, you know, my grandfather's a farmer, owns a couple of businesses. He's always tinkering and inventing and just uh, inquisitive with a ingenuitive mindset. Okay, I'm kind of I'm kind of the same way. Like if I would rather build something myself than go out necessarily and buy it. A lot of times, although it's changing once you have kids. <laughs> yeah, I'm, time. I'm, essence yeah but um you know having somewhat of an idea or familiarity with how these things worked we just began doing research on image sensors and uh mcus microcontrollers and flash units and google will do you wonders if you can if you know how to use the search engine and we just began starting looking at data sheets and cut sheets and looking at different grade components um like for sim cards for example i know the cellular trail camera craze is, um, is upon us now. But SIM cards, um, along with a lot of other components, come in a lot of different grades. You can buy you know, um, commercial or consumer-grade products, components that have a X, X amount of lifespan. You can buy medical-grade, which is a little longer, automotive-grade, and industrial-grade. And everything is 
designed within you know certain parameters or certain lifespans so once we realize that that's when like okay we can build these things to last longer that's when that idea like really really set in okay um but you know doing that and then tearing apart other cameras and seeing how other cameras were built and then looking outside of the hunting industry and the hunting marketplace looking at companies like gopro looking at companies that were building other uh, consumer electronics, but are doing it at a higher level. Um, that is where we realize, okay, we can do this better. Even though we don't have any experience, we might be able to do this better than a lot of other companies. And simple things like like hydro, um, hydro, nano hydrophobic coatings or um, specific coatings you can put on PCB boards to help um, with moisture ingress on components. And there's a lot of little things that may cost you 50 cents or a dollar, maybe $2 more on the manufacturing end, but it increases the longevity of the product because again, we're not forced to build products at a specific price point for a retailer. So, you know, learning those things, that part was relatively easy. Yeah. Finding a contract <laughs> manufacturer overseas was, a, it was a hell of a lot harder. Um, and that process was, you know, three or four months long and at one point, you know, we were just about ready to to give up because it seemed like regardless of who we talked to, you know, everyone was building these things a certain way and they did not want to change that process. Okay. It's like plug and play. You know, we're building X camera for X company. You can, you know, you could change, you know, image sensors or change lenses, but all the other resistors and the process of building a PCB board or engineering, designing a PCB board, like none, we don't want to change any of that because that's what we do. Right. So finding a, a CM to deal with a new company that had no money <laughs> was a, was a barrier. And then finding someone who was open to doing things a little bit different. Um, it was a, it was a, a, a challenge. And quite frankly, we got lucky because Matt knew a guy that knew a guy that knew a guy that made an introduction and, their personnel ha happened to be stateside, and they have stateside uh, representatives, and they happened to be at a um, um, at a retail show or a B2B show uh, in New York City. They came over to Harrisburg. We went over to Harrisburg, um, had a face-to-face -face meeting, and you know we're handing over sketches on napkins and drawings and like just crazy stuff. And they're like, "Yeah, I, you know, I I think that we could we could help you." Um, and then, you know, three or four months later, we're going through the, me the mechanical design of the actual shell, uh, which is relatively easy. I have some some AutoCAD experience, so some solid work stuff. So that wasn't totally foreign. Okay. Then going into um, firmware, like it's the physical uh, mechanical design of the camera wasn't that foreign. And the PCB board layouts and the Gerber files and schematics, that wasn't totally foreign but when it got into the software of the camera and firmware of the camera um, that was something that none of us had any clue about right. so we really had to outsource that and we've had our struggles with with um, with different with different coders and firmware writers um, and it's just now after I would say after four years we finally got a deep understanding of um, you know of written logic and the way a operating system should work with um, you know, around the design phase. So it's an ever, it's a never ending, ever growing, um, ever evolving process. But the one nice thing about trail cameras is the market is so small and this might come to surprise because as most hunters think about hunting, trail cameras are a common tool where most people have multiples of them. Right. The marketplace is so small. There's not necessarily new technology coming out every year specifically for trail cameras. A lot of it's bleed over from other marketplaces and a lot of the technology might be 12, 24 months old where there's already use cases being applied and um, enough data to make really fast decisions um, around the technology being used. Yeah, and you, you mentioned something there early on about like longevity of components and things like that. And it would seem, I mean, especially you know, with Exodus having the, the five-year warranty, which is like an industry-leading five-year warranty, it seems like, you know, a lot of other maybe 
companies, uh, competitors of yours that are selling, you know, just primarily to big box or, you know, they have to hit, hit a certain price point for retail that they're, they're looking at it as more of a disposable product. And, and, you know, you know, I know like there's going to come a point in the lifespan of a trail camera where it's just, it's not going to function the same way it did when you opened it up out of the box. I mean, that's, that's technology for anything. Right. And it seems like you guys have kind of taken the approach is that while there may still come a point where you're going to have to replace it, or you just want to get a newer model or newer technology that you don't want your customers to have to worry about that every year you know, at the end of the season when you're pulling cameras or if you let it sit through the year to try to gain some intel during the winter, you know, that, you know, come spring when you pull it, you go, shit, you know, this one's trash, this one's done, you know, you guys have taken a different approach in that regard as well. Yeah, you know, I think that you you said it pretty good there. They're, um, most cameras are built as a commodity or con- as a consumable product. Um, and even on the support side or the back end, a lot of companies look at it that way. If your camera gets stolen, if it gets flooded, damaged, whatever, because it's there's potential there for increased revenue or sales opportunity. Right. But as a business owner, I just never felt it's a little more, um, I guess, emotional for us. Like if, you know, our products are not cheap and we don't, they're not marketed to the masses. Um, it's a higher end product, a higher end premium brand, I guess you could say. And when someone is giving me $200, $200 is a lot of money. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what you do for a living. $200 is a lot of money. So you look at that and that could be a, that could be a day's wage for somebody. So when I look at dollar bills, I'm looking at it as someone's giving me a day of their life from one of our products. And I think when you look at it in that manner, um, you become much more attached to not just the brand, and not just a product, but the end, the end user. Um, so when we look at it in that manner, yes, we want these things to work. We want them. To, we want them to work for um, five plus years. Not all cameras, you know. Not we replace cameras. We have to fix cameras. Sometimes they fail. That's that's that is part of it. Right. But we make sure that those people, um, you know, get their get their money's worth. And they get they see the value in um, in what we do. Yeah, and that's and I think what you just touched on there. I think kind of really boils down to the fact that you're, you know, essentially a small business. You know, this is, you put your kind of your, your savings, your, this is your life's work, right? Like this is what you've invested, you know, so much of your kind of blood, sweat, tears, time, money, everything into over the last six years. And yeah, there's a certain sense that when, you know, especially, you know, when, when your name is on the company, that if something goes wrong, I mean, that's, that's essentially, you know, for as, as another small business owner, you go, well, you know, that's not just my brand. Like that's me. Like I'm, I'm letting the customers down or I'm letting, you know, the consumers down and, and that's not what you want. So yeah. And you don't have to answer to anyone. Right. So you don't have to answer to like a board of directors or something like that. So you can take, you know, a certain amount of pride in making sure that your consumers are, are satisfied and that they're getting what they pay for. Yeah. hundred percent. So what is it? You kind of have, have mentioned a few points, but what is it that really sets ex- Exodus apart from your competitors aside from like the warranty side of things? Well, I think, uh, you know, when you look at our mission statement, it is to increase or maximize a hunter's experience with a trail camera, both through the physical product support and content. And, you know, these things, digital trail cameras have been around since the early 2000s, and there's never been an entity or person, authoritative figure, to step up and educate people on on cameras. It's always a marketing team in a in a boardroom or conference room trying to figure out the best slogan to slap on a box to sell more cameras. <laughs> yep. Um, and it's a it's a shame that we've gone you know 15 or 20 years without anyone stepping up and doing that. So. One of the things, and I think it's very important, um, one of the competitive advantages, I guess, is our branded content. Because we're, whether you buy a $50 Wild Game, $25 Tasco, $500 Reconyx, or $200 Exodus camera, we're educating people on, on those specific topics. Uh, not just strategies and tactics, how to kill more deer, but what is actually going on with your camera. How does it work? If you experience this problem, this could be the root cause. This is how you fix it. This is the best power supply. These are the best settings. Um, so that's 
you know, that's one thing. Obviously, the business model being consumer direct and dealing with straight uh, factory direct or, you know, um, directly with a company you're selling to, you're saving yourselves. Um, and I mean, not saving yourself money, but you're getting more for your dollar. Yeah. Versus having, you know, several several people in there, each kind of taking their taking their margin. Um, and then, you know, the 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 support on the on the back end. Um, you know, we go through great efforts to support our products and support customers. So I think when you tie all those things in um, with class leading, you know, products, I think it's bundled up into a nice package where the value props pretty good for pretty good for folks. Yeah. And one of the things, um, the the customer service side of things as as I've gotten older and, you know, when you're starting to spend money on higher quality things, I mean the customer service is is so important regardless of of what it is that you're buying whether it's gear uh from like a clothing standpoint whether it's your bow your rifle your trail cameras whatever it is the the customer service knowing that you can reach out and talk to someone directly who's going to be able to help you who actually uses the products you know because that's the thing i mean you'll call customer service with you know with some companies and you know they're not a participant right and i've heard dan johnson talk about this on some of his podcasts you know that that's what's nice with dealing with with some of these companies is that they're users, right? They're not just out there to make a product to make a buck. Like they make a product because they saw a need, they wanted to better the marketplace and they're passionate about, you know, in this particular case, hunting. So I think that goes a long ways, especially as social media and the internet has, you know, taken storm and that's how so many people interact anymore to be able to, to speak to someone, even though it's, it's almost kind of a lost art form with, with being able to talk to someone on the phone. Like, it goes a long way um, in terms of kind of giving the consumer that warm and fuzzy that if something goes wrong, like, hey, you know, I can call up Exodus and boom, I'm going to talk to someone on the phone, walk me through the problem. If we can't fix it, you know, they'll replace it or they'll, you know, fix my camera for me. Yeah, no, that's definitely part of it. And surprisingly, you know, our demographic is a little bit older as, you know, if you look at the average age of hunters, um, it's kind of creeping up into that you know, fifties range or might be even a little higher than that. But surprisingly we offer, um, tech and product support via text as well. Okay. You'd be surprised at how many, how many people, uh, prefer texting now over, over physical calls. And sometimes it's like, we have to ask them, can we just, can we just call yeah. you through this <laughs> texting? Um, so it's, yeah, it's kind of funny, but, um, yeah, that's, you know, support is a support is a big deal. And it's, it's one of those things, um, as you mentioned, you have to be familiar with the product. If you don't use them, you know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna tell someone who, who is using them anything that they don't already know, right. uh, regardless of what kind of spreadsheet or questionnaire or form you have in, have in front of you. So um, that is important. So now you mentioned it earlier that a lot of the technology is kind of evolving and trending towards the the cell cams and so many people you know it's i mean there's obviously a ton of benefits to to cell cams and everything like that so when is it that you guys kind of switched over and started developing your cell cams um well we started back in 2017 um and it took us about two years to get that get that product to market and really in 2019 you started to see the influx of questions about about cell cams and it was typically do you have one of those cameras that sends pictures to your phone i mean that's that's typically the right. way it would be worded at a, at a trade show um but really this mass social acceptance really did not hit until last year um now we've gotten to a place where you know even though it's the highest price point camera that we have, we sell six of those to one of our regular SD card cameras. So I think it's a, it's a combination of guys being infatuated with the new technology, but also I think they see the value proposition of not having to put, um, you know, their human footprint or intrusion or pressure on their hunting property. Uh, and then they also see it as a time savings because, you know, if they're, you know, we're in a day and age now where there's more and more, um, hunting opportunity on, on private or public land away from their home or private land, um, via leases away from their home. And to be able to monitor those remotely 
um, just makes, you know, a world, a world of difference. Yeah. I, while I don't use cell cams, obviously, like I think of how many times, I mean, we have some private land here in Michigan that we hunt about, it's about 140 acres, something like that. So we have, you know, a couple dozen trail cameras set out throughout the property. Some, you know, we put out early in the season. We don't check on them until after the season or anything like that. Um, but there's, you know, so we have two, maybe three guys that'll hunt the property. And, you know, especially like early in the season, we'll go out and depending upon which stand we're sitting in, you know, we'll, we'll pull cards for the cameras as we're on our way in or on our way out. Um, and there's been, I don't know how many times where it's like, man, if I would have had some intel the day before that, you know, this deer's coming through or that the deer had come through, you know, the past two days in this stand and I sat in a different stand. I mean, there's, there's so many benefits to, to using those and I can definitely see. And, and then again, to your point with not having to, you know, kind of disrupt the area. I mean, those things are huge. And I think, you know, with all these podcasts out there right now and people talking about, you know, minimizing your footprint in there that whatever guys can do, they're going to try to take advantage of that. Yeah. You know, there was, um, I don't know if it was an internal podcast that we did or if, if I was on a show with um, you know, a, a different podcast, but somewhere along the lines in the last 18 months, I've uh, I've said that I feel cellular trail cameras are the biggest technological advance advancement for a hunter since the modern day firearm. And I truly 100% believe that. Yeah. I mean, just without spending a lot of time thinking about it, I'm not sure that that there is because it's something that can equate to whether you're you're using a firearm or you're using a bow because you know if you look at a bow you know you've got like those garmin sights and things like that that you know range it without having to do it and people obviously have their opinions on those but yeah from a technological standpoint i think you're i'd have a hard time coming up with something to to argue against that and that's (laughs) that's true so now someone who may be just getting into hunting or someone who, while they've used trail cameras, it's never been a big part of their, their plan of attack. You know, what is something that a consumer should look for when buying a camera? Well, I think there's a lot of, a lot of things you need to, to look at. Um, you know, obviously most hunters are spending discretionary funds or their extra play money, um, on these things. But I think the first thing outside of price point, because price point does matter. I mean, if you only have a hundred dollars to spend, you're not going to be looking at $200 cameras. That's just, you know, the way that it is. Um, but when you start to look at cameras or if you're new to cameras, I think that the first thing you need to ask yourself is what type of locations you're going to put these cameras in. Um, and we break that down into two different categories, one being static, static environments, and then the other being dynamic environments. So if you think about the word static, meaning kind of stagnant or still, Mm -hmm. um, we consider areas like bait stations or feeders, mineral sites, areas where you know um, you where you can dictate deer movement and deer placement, and you know they're going to spend a lot amount of time there. Uh, we consider those static areas where you can get away with running a camera that maybe has a slower trigger speed, maybe it has a shorter flash range, maybe it has a shorter detection range, maybe it has a slower recovery time, because if those deer are coming into a feeder or corn pile or whatever you know they're going to be there for more than likely a couple minutes. Right. More more than likely they're, that's an often frequented site. Um, so you don't necessarily need all the maybe bells and whistles and the highest specifications to use a camera um, in an area like that, which thus typically brings that price of that camera down. Um, and then on the flip side of that, dynamic areas are areas like trails or bedding areas, food plots, ag fields where – deer are going to wander a little more and they may only pass that camera once every you know week or every several days um and they may not be in an exact spot um so those are areas where you need a faster trigger speed you need a shorter trigger delay you need a longer flash range you need uh, a longer detection area so i think once you break those things down then you can start looking at you know your specifications as trigger speed flash range um you know, recovery times, things of, uh, things of that nature. That's that, I mean, that's a really good point because I've never really looked at it that way or heard it broken down in, in that regard. Because I mean, like I, 
we kind of talked about before we started recording here. I mean, while I use trail cameras, it's never something that I've put a lot of time or, or thought into. I mean, hell, usually I'm getting them for gifts, you know, birthdays, Christmas, stuff like that, because, you know, it's, it's something that's, that's easy to get. that You don't have to put a lot of thought into and you know, I'm going to use, but no, that's, that's a very good way to break it down. And for, for people looking to get into it. Yeah. That's, that's a great piece of advice. So where'd the name Exodus come from? How'd you guys come up with that? So a lot of, we get that question a lot, actually. Um, and a lot of people, they're hoping that the answer is biblical. Like they, <laughs> that it's coming, coming from, you know, the book of Exodus, uh, in the Bible, but it's not. So when you look at the, the root word or the meaning behind Exodus, it means like mass departure or mass movement. And when we, prior to incorporating, you know, we were going through, business names, branding, you know, all, all of that stuff. And we just felt like that encompassed a mass movement away from the obsolescence mindset of the products and, and lackluster support. Um, so with what we were trying to do, the word Exodus fit and kind of fit, fit that mold that there needed to be a movement with inside, inside the trail camera industry. So, um, whether it was right or wrong, that's what we, that's what we rolled out with. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a cool name, man. And you know, when it, it's, it's an easy one to remember. Um, it's when, when someone says Exodus, I mean, I, trail cameras are the first thing I think about, right? Like I'm, I'm not going to the, to the Bible or anything like that, something biblical. So no, I think you guys, you kind of hit the nail on the head with that, man. Thank you. I appreciate that. So I kind of want to shift gears a little bit here and start, uh, well, get a better understanding of like how, how you were introduced to the outdoors. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in a small rural, I guess, farm town, a lot like everyone else across the Midwest, um, population of 1500, you know, 60 some kids in my, you know, graduating high school class. Bigger than mine. (laughs) Nice. Usually I'm on, on, on the opposite end of that. Yeah, no, I've, yeah, I'm from the same type of town, but go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So, um, you know, my mother's side of the family, um, my grandfather is a second generation, third generation, uh, was a third generation dairy farmer. So he bought the farm that his grandfather had, the farm that he grew up on, and basically the farm that I spent a hell of a lot of time on. Um, so he, you know, my grandfather was, um, you know, he was busy working like my, as my dad and my uncles. Um, but he was, uh, he was a little more serious about about hunting, whereas everyone else in the family it was it was just a pastime or a, a, a hobby. Like when when shotgun season rolled around, everybody took the first couple of days off from work, yep. hunted, and outside of that, like that was hunting season for 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 everyone. Right. So, um, being the oldest in the family, um, we looked at you know passing your hunter's ed at like twelve or thirteen, kind of as a passage to like manhood like you got to go out with a shotgun and <laughs> and deer hunt um and as kids we were you know we'd run around cornfields and shoot frogs with bb guns and just do normal farm kid stuff you know um but that first deer season was really the, the passage to to manhood and you know hunting for three or four years there were a lot of blunders um but when I was 16, I was able to luckily, and I say luckily because it was completely blind, dumb luck, um, end up killing a 177-inch um, mainframe 10-pointer. I'll take Just that luck. Giant, <laughs> giant deer. And that entire experience um, just left me not only craving more, but it became an obsession for me learning about deer. And this is in the mid to late nineties, this is like 98, 99. And, uh, you know, the following year ended up getting, um, an old Jennings compound, a wheeled bow. Basically it was used, um, an old bow and I started archery hunting and really I was probably, you know, I said my grandfather was a more serious hunter. He was probably ahead of his time as far as looking at QDM, um, looking at, the age structure of deer doing habitat work for deer, like as far as food plots, nobody else was doing that stuff, at least right. in our neighborhood, nobody else was doing that stuff in the nineties. So, you know, seeing him 
past young bucks um, on the thought that next year he'd be older and bigger. Um, at 16, after killing that deer, I realized like, well, you could potentially do this every every year um, if you if you really get deep into it and take the management side serious. So that's that's kind of how I got started. But you know, going through going through my 20s, there was a long hiatus of that. I went off to college, played football, pursued a rodeo career, and then didn't, you know, while I still hunted, it was more, um, you know, muzzle loader season on Christmas break yeah. because you were playing football every single day uh, real, in the fall. Real quick, where'd you play at? Uh, Youngstown State. Okay. YSU. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I played in college as well. So I was wondering if, uh, if, if you played... So that's what one double A. That was okay. Yeah. I was Division two, but knowing, I mean, there's a ton of Division two colleges in Ohio there. Yeah. So I was like, man, I wonder because I think we're based on when you said you know you were hunting. I was like, man, he's probably around the same age as me. Like, I wonder if I wonder if we crossed paths and we had no idea uh, early on. Are you a Grand Valley State guy or Saginaw Valley? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I was there from uh, 01 to I played 01 to 04. Yeah. Yep. Same years. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Sorry, but I didn't mean to cut you off there. But when so nope, when someone's like, "Oh yeah, I played football in college," I'm like, "All right, I've got to ask the question now." That's it's a that's a common thread or common bond, man. There's not a lot of us out there. Yeah. I know. Yeah, and it's uh, it's funny without getting sidetracked too much here. When I talk to people, whether they're you know committee members with two percent or their business is two percent certified, how much similarities I have with so many people from all over the country too, man, like this, their upbringing and, and how they were raised and, you know, what they were into growing up and everything. So it's, it's nice to come across a fellow college athlete that, that has turned, you know, into the outdoor industry. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of parallel between sports and life. As long as you don't, you know, don't take the meathead approach to it, just being able to (laughs) overcome adversity. And I say meathead because we get that we get that uh, stereotype sometimes at least i do oh yeah so I, all too often man all too often I, I throw that in there but um yeah going back to i guess to my through my 20s um you know just hunting when i could or when time was available was basically it and then um in my late 20s when i had to become an adult because i couldn't do anything else um i you know got back into the sport more i say sport but got back into uh archery hunting um on a back into a higher level yeah um so that's kind of that's how i guess i started and got to a place where ultimately i was being obsessed with chasing big whitetails or mature whitetails yeah and you're definitely in the right state for that as well because i was going to say i mean you see so many guys especially from like michigan here which while it's in the midwest and it's from a you know kind of habitat or terrain or just the general area isn't a whole lot different than Ohio. I think Ohio's probably got some more hilly country if you get, you know, kind of further to the east there. But do you even have to leave Ohio to chase whitetail? You don't have to. I do. Um, And it sounds crazy. Everyone, Ohio's pretty segmented. When you look at the population density and then some of the, the better hunting I basically live in one of the worst counties. We run <laughs> one of the worst whitetail counties in the entire state. So when you get up in the Northeast, um, you know, a, very small tracks of ground, uh, pretty high hunter density numbers. Not not like Michigan or Pennsylvania, but it's it's not extremely far off. Yeah. Um, so even in Ohio, I'm driving five hours to hunt my home state. Whew. So it's um, but it's it, you know part of it is i like hill country i yeah. like to hunt hill country I'm right i grew up hunting ag ground i live in ag ground flat um some swamp but there's something about big open vast areas um that bring that bring chasing whitetails the experience of chasing whitetails closer to me and i think that that was a realization after i went on my first elk hunt in in colorado just a diy public land hunt with my grandfather and a group of his friends they're 60 some years old they're not like you know they're riding four wheelers around like it's a it's a camp experience for them or get away from you know their wives or their everyday (laughs) life um as much as it is about hunting but when i was out there just being it felt like i was in places where 
you know, no one else had ever stepped foot before. And that, uh, it kind of struck home to me. And then I found myself back home on a farm at November, killed a great deer, 160 giant, 167 inch clean 10 pointer. And I could see the barn light on and I could hear the dogs bark and you could hear traffic and just felt like something was missing a little bit. Yeah. So then I ventured, um, yeah, I ventured to the Southern part of the state to get on bigger tracks of big woods, public, public land, um, to have that experience. Yeah. You mentioned something when you were talking about your introduction to the outdoors that I thought was was something that was really kind of ahead of its time with the like the QDM practices and being at that young of an age and kind of having that realization, you know, passed on from your grandfather. But, you know, the let them grow, you know, philosophy that, you know, I feel like really hasn't even or didn't really catch on till, you know, shit, a handful of years ago, you know, maybe maybe 10 years ago. And I don't know if that's the emergence of social media and more people who just had, you know, a lot more experience with, you know, deer management were able to kind of share their stories and, and their practices and their, the idea behind that. But to learn that at a young age, man, that's got to really kind of one, it's got to be almost a little frustrating because, you know, growing up in small towns, man, like if it was Brown, it was down. I mean, I don't know how many, you know, times you would talk to people. Yeah. I shot a four point, shot a spike, small six or something like that. And people were just pumped, you know, I mean, shooting these little basket eights and, and they were just kind of concerned about the points on it when it's, you know, maybe, you know, a very young two and a half year old eight point or something like that. And and now where we're at, you know, people are looking at that and, and I have no problem with people shooting those deer. I mean, whatever's going to get you fired up, right? Go ahead and take. But the more people kind of practice that, the better the deer herd is. And I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's a form of conservation right there, right? You know, like letting, you know, mature deer, uh, you know, letting younger deer mature and, you know, strengthen the population in the herd. Yeah. You know, I don't know that I understood it at that young of an age, but I was, you know, being exposed to it, um, exposed to the result of it is what had me intrigued. I don't think I really understood it probably until, you know, just, 10, 15, 18 years ago, probably when, you know, 29, 30 years old, really understood um, and debunked, I guess, some of the misconceptions, like once a spike, always a spike, you know, that whole, um, that whole concept, Um, understanding deer density numbers and, you know, herd population and predator, predator control, habitat improvement. I mean, there's a, there's so much more to learn. Um, And that's, that's, what's cool is, um, you know, some of these research facilities, Mississippi State, and some of the some of the biologists and doctors. There's more and more information coming out, and uh, it's really obtainable. Like you said, with Web 2.0, uh, social, all this stuff, all these podcasts. I mean, there's so much more information out now. Um, I really think it's a benefit, and it just shortens the learning curve, regardless of what you're trying to do. And I'm in the same philosophy as you. I, you know. If a guy goes buys buys his tag and 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 harvests something and it's legal and he's happy with it, that's awesome. Yeah. Like that's that's what this is. Yeah. Uh, so I don't want to come off sounding like oh if it's not a four four or five year old like you're doing it wrong. Like it's hunting is different for for everyone that does it. Um, there might be a guy that only gets one day off of work a year because he's busy feeding his family and that's all he has. Like if he's gonna shoot a you know, a one and a half year old buck or a spike or a button buck or doe, like more power to them. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And I wish that I think sometimes, obviously going back to the social media thing that, that people, whether they get embarrassed by the deer that they shoot or they think they have to shoot something big because, you know, they see these big names in the industry, you know, killing these booners every year or something like that. I mean, that's, that's not what it is. And I, you know, personally, I was probably guilty of that early on in my hunting career too, is, you know, seeing people shoot these big deer and, you know, you're, you're harvesting does or, you know, young bucks. And you're like, man, I don't want to tell anyone what I shot or anything like that. So it's, I, I like to see more and more people kind of having that same mindset of that, you know, take whatever is going to get you pumped up, take whatever, you know, is available to you within, you know, the, the legal means and, and be happy with it. Because, you know, regardless of what the, the, the reason for being out there, we all kind of have the same end goal. So, you know, whether you're killing, you know, 150 plus class deers every year, or you're just, you know, you're doing doe management on your property because that's, you know, what you have a surplus of, um, 
you know, more power to you regardless of, of what you're going to take. Absolutely. Yeah. So want to kind of shift gears again here and talk about, obviously, the reason we're here. Um, Exodus is 2% certified. So um, tell me again how you first learned about 2%. We first learned of 2% for conservation um, probably back in 2017 or 18. And it was through a customer, um, Sean Burdick. He had stopped by. We were at Harrisburg, the Great American Outdoor Show, and he had stopped by. And he was running a local uh, QDMA branch, and he stopped stopped by. And at, you know, we were talking about donating camera for one of their events, and he brought up two percent and, and wondered if we had any uh, any knowledge. And we said, you know, no. And he kind of gave us the rundown. And we're sitting there thinking, okay, well, w- number one, um, the cause is great, right? Not not just from um, like a publicity standpoint, because some a company could look at 2% and having that badge put on their website or that badge next to their brand as a, um, marketing uh, tool or advantage. Yeah, absolutely. But we looked at it as, um, well, one, we were already doing this. We're already donating, um, money and product to all of these nonprofits. So that was part of it. Like we're already, we're already doing this. We're already doing, um, at least 75% of the obligation. Um, so then we looked at it from a, um, I guess an industry or market standpoint as in the market becoming smaller, shrinking, um, which obviously with the shrinking market, the Pittman Robertson act means, you know, less money being spent in our industry, less money going to conservation. And then the political landscape at that time, um, around public lands and that, whole movement of keeping it public and whether it's, you know, state legislation or federal legislation, there was a lot of question marks there and taking that, those thoughts and tying it back to our brand and thinking, okay, why did we, why did we start this thing? What kind of difference are we trying to make? It made sense for us to be a 2% company from every single angle that we could look at. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there was, it was like, okay, let's get on the phone with Jared. Like that was, you know, that was basically it. It happened, it happened that fast. Yeah. And I think, and anyone who's listened to the podcast has heard me mention this on, on numerous occasions, but it's almost like as soon as a company finds out or, or learns about 2%, um, like I want, I don't want to say necessarily that a light bulb goes off, but they, it becomes a no brainer. It's like, well, yeah, obviously I'm going to become certified. I'm, I'm going to be getting involved. I mean, we're already doing this. Um, you know, our, our customers are, are active participants. You know, we want to support the, the wild places and wild things that these, that our customers are, are using our products to, to help to harvest, right? Like it's, it's, uh, it's a very easy decision for a lot of companies once they, once they learn about 2%. Yeah, there's, yeah, no doubt about it. So what are some of the organizations that you guys are giving back to? We've, uh, well, currently with the QDMA and um, the NDA kind of merging and rebranding, we continue to donate to NDA there, uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, um, Ducks Unlimited, um, the ODNR, a lot of our time, because we're here in Ohio utilizing public ground, a lot of, um, not a lot, but in past years, we've donated time um, to not necessarily ODNR projects, but just going out ourselves, cleaning trash up or um, doing things of that nature, kind of on our own initiative. Um, trying to think what I know those are like the, the, the several big um, companies that we've, or not companies, but um, 501c3s that we've donated to in the past. And, you know, all of those were, you know, we're, we're doing that and fulfilling our needs and we feel like we're helping in some capacity, but it, it at the same time, those, um, you know, those actions felt like a little, little soulless is the best way to, to put it. Like we're going through these actions, we're donating products, but once we ship that product or write that check, our hands are really off, right? You know, our hands are really off the, off the situation. So this year, um, while we're still you know, donating products and, you know, meeting our monetary obligations, we've kind of taken that a step further in that at the beginning of the year during our, um, actually the end of 
2020 during our annual meetings, strategic week, we decided that we wanted to have a better pulse on, um, you know, some of our actions that relate to 2% for conservation. So in 2021, we decided we were going to bring in two non-hunters and mentor them and document that process basically from, from start to start to finish. And there's a, there were multiple reasons we decided to do this. One is yes, you know, a lot of people focus on R3 to grow hunter numbers, right? Um, shrinking market, everybody wants more hunters involved. But at the same point in time, when you look across the political landscape, you know, the hunting population is like, what, 12 million, 11, yeah. 12 million, something like that. We live in a world or a, a country with 330 plus million people. And then on the flip side, you have, I don't know, maybe 15, 20, 25, 30 million anti-hunters. So you have this large demographic of non-hunters who are kind of in the middle um, that don't really necessarily have the strongest opinion one way or the other. And those people are ultimately going to have a very large influence of the political landscape of how conservation is handled, um, both through you know public land access and, and hunting. So with this project in 2021, we don't have a name for it, called newbies, um, <laughs> whatever, you know, whatever you want to, whatever you want to throw at it. We plucked out two middle-aged men who have next to zero experience with even firearms. Um, so two completely non-hunters, both guys are very, uh, articulate, well-educated, well-versed, folks at in a in the corporate world so they'd be like a white collared corporate guy right in that type of environment uh, very good communicators and our goal with this was to expose them to the entire process so the you know the hunter safety ed taking them through that some taking them through firearm training um, getting them in the office answering any questions and then exposing them to what hunting means to us um, as individuals, what it means to us as, as companies, because I think a lot of times it's very easy and the lazy way out for non-hunters is to categorize us or, or stereotype us with the lowest common denominator. Yeah. And the reality of it is we have to be able to have these harder conversations um, for the good of conservation and for the good of hunting, because saying it's our God-given right it's just at this day and age, like that's not that's not good enough. We have to be able to articulate that. So, when you look at the R three strategy of recruitment, retention, renewal, um, you know that's part of growing our sport, but also growing the advocates in the non hunting segment. I think is just as powerful when it comes to the political landscape. So, that whole project is something um, that we're doing. On, on top of our other 2% um, obligations for, for 2021. Yeah. I mean, that's, first off, that, that sounds like an awesome project um, to, to be able to expose someone who, like you mentioned, is indifferent on, on hunting or doesn't have an opinion one way or the other, just doesn't have the, the information to maybe really make a, uh, an educated decision or an informed decision, excuse me, an informed decision, I should say on on hunting and yeah you you make a very good point i mean that's that's kind of the largest piece of the pie in terms of hunters non-hunters or there's the hunters the non-hunters and there's everyone else and that's the the biggest piece of kind of the the entire pie that is our population so you're right i mean that's that's kind of what the future hinges on is is that big group in the middle like you said um so how is that going so far i mean i know we're you know kind of early on we're just getting into the second quarter here how is that uh, going so far with those gentlemen it's been pretty cool um you know i think at first we were a little nervous because um we're doing this through turkey season too so it hasn't we just got started on this in the, in the past several weeks so we've gone through uh hunter ed here and then we've gone through some firearm training and it, so the guys have done great first of all um hats off to them to explain expose themselves to something that's totally foreign to them. Um, a lot of times folks, you know, have walls built up and they don't want to, um, step out of their comfort zone. Yeah, exactly. 
be out of their comfort zone in a, especially in a situation around other grown men yeah. um, who this is their life. Right. Right. Yep. Um, so it's been cool to see them grow and ask questions, um, through the firearm training, both, I mean, these guys shot exceptionally well, um, both with pistols, shotguns. Um, so we, we just recorded a podcast with, with, uh, one of those guys, uh, about a week ago. Um, and we're excited to get them in the Turkey woods. And we chose, we chose Turkey hunting to kind of start this thing off because it's, there's, it feels like there's more, a little more camaraderie there it's not um it's not as as stressful um and in in the public eye there's less criticism or judgment it's not like you kill a turkey no one's asking you how old it is or like yeah yeah long its beard is like you kill an adult bird like yeah i shot yeah i shot a gobbler yeah right yep so and it's it's a little more active um so we wanted to keep them in a kind of high pace high energy environment you know communicating vocalizations with with um you know with a bird is, is a lot of fun so um so far so good uh but we'll see we don't kick off here till may may 1st in the northeast part of the state the rest of the state opens the 24th so we have um oh i don't know we have a few days before we get started yeah but the goal is to you know give them an opportunity that's what we told them you know we can't guarantee you you guys are going to kill anything and harvest harvest a, an adult bird but um, the goal is to get them an opportunity and hopefully, you know, taking them through training, they can make the most of it. Yeah. And that's uh, turkey hunting. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. That's a good place to start because, I mean, for one, the, the barrier for entry is a lot lower than like whitetail or something like that. And it's uh, like you said, you can talk a lot more throughout the process because, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're whitetail hunting and let's say you, you have, you're, you're set up to where you can both be in a tree stand next to each other or you're in some type of box blind or something like that. I mean, you get deer in the vicinity, you know, you're not really talking, right? You're, and, and it's hard to, to be able to articulate, okay, this is what we want to do. This is why we're doing it. And with turkey hunting, I mean, it's also a little bit more straightforward uh, in terms of trying to get the, you know, call the birds in off the roost or, you know, locate the birds or anything like that. So yeah, well, I'm excited to uh, to kind of see how how that progresses and and see if you guys can get one of those guys a bird. Yeah, it's, it's I think it's gonna be a lot of fun. I know um, Cameron, one of the guys here, he was a little nervous um, at first, you know, being one of the trainers, I guess, or teachers and and mentors. Mentors is a better word because he's 28, 29, um, and has never really been in a role where he had to teach someone else, you know, what he knows. Um, and he was, he was pretty nervous at first, but, uh, now that he's done it and we've kind of walked through some of this, um, over the last couple of weeks, he's, he's pretty excited about it. So, yeah. And I don't, I don't want to speak for him, but I'd imagine that it's probably going to be a bit more fulfilling for him if, if he's able to be on the call for, for someone that shoots their first bird instead of him, you know, possibly shooting his, you know, second, third, fourth, 10th, you know, Turkey, whatever it is to see someone else. And that's kind of what the way I look at things too, is, you know, if you can help someone else experience that joy of harvesting your first animal, regardless of what it is, a whitetail, a turkey, a quail, partridge, whatever the case is, I mean, it's its a feeling that you can't really explain to someone unless they have, you know, um, you know, had that same experience, right? You can, I can tell you to them blue in the face what it feels like. I mean, it's like scoring a touchdown, right? Like you can't explain to someone what it is and how good it feels until you've actually done it yourself. Yeah. Yep. Great analogy. Absolutely. <laughs> I got to go back to those roots at some point here. <laughs> I, I was a defensive guy though. So, <laughs> oh. so yeah, even more so. Yeah. Uh, well, Hey Chad, before I let you go here, um, obviously we're just getting into Turkey season here. Do you have any big hunts or anything like that planned for, uh, for this spring or this fall that you're looking forward to? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously the, uh, the newbies project, um, here in Ohio, um, and one of the cool things we do as a company here at Exodus, um, we take everyone out of state for just a quick, short trip, um, kind of a paid vacation, whatever, you know, on the company dollar. It's good for corporate culture, company culture, bonding, team building, whatever the hell you want to call it. It's just fun. Yeah. So um, we're headed to Kansas uh, April 12th, 13th, something okay. like that, four or five days. Um, and talking to some biologists there, the bird numbers are down. They've had some 
bad nesting success rates last couple of years. So um, we probably should have called them a dock before we bought the tags. But the tags are bought. We're going. We're going to make the most of it. And uh, hopefully we uh, lay down a couple birds. So nice. we have that going on. Um, September, I guess going into the fall, I, I have an uh, Idaho, Idaho elk tag, um, an archery tag for September and then whitetail hunting here in Ohio and then whitetail hunting in Kansas. So pretty packed year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hey, good luck on all those, man. I know that, uh, Idaho, that's pretty, uh, pretty good tag to draw there, especially for archery season. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty pumped well, up about that. yeah. Well, real quick for those that, that are not familiar, those that have not already looked up Exodus, where can they find you guys? So the website is exodusoutdoorgear.com and then at Exodus trail cameras across all social platforms. Awesome. All right. Well, hey, Chad, I appreciate the time today, and uh, I enjoyed learning more about trail cameras and some of the work and projects that you guys have going on over there. Yeah, thanks, thanks, for, uh, thanks for the invite and the time. Enjoyed the conversation, and um, keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate, um, appreciate the platform. Yeah. All right, Chad. Well, uh, you have yourself a good one. All right. Well, thanks again to Chad for taking some time to uh, join me on the podcast today. Uh, I would also like to thank our partners over at Stone Glacier and Go Hunt, as well as Wild Rivers Coffee. Uh, Be sure and support the companies that help make this podcast possible. Uh, I would also like to thank 2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop, um, including Exodus. I also encourage you guys to follow 2% on social media where they're going to post only positive content so you enjoy that conservation-focused posts in your feed. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Remember, stay safe out there and conservation starts with you. you.